Welcome to the IDC podcast. The IDC promotes independent research on antitrust and competition law and policy issues, being also the point of contact between all those who have a special interest in the area, both in Latin America and globally. Today I'm going to assume that people are familiar with climate change and competition law, although I will mention key provisions as they are relevant. What I want to look at is the relationship between those two concepts in the context of agreements, abuse of monopoly power and mergers. In one sense I apologise that this is focused almost exclusively on European law, but many regimes, competition antitrust regimes around the world, have been modelled on EU law, so I think people will see the relevance there. But equally importantly, I think many of the principles about which I'm talking um, can be applied in other countries or adapted to apply in other countries. You might well ask, what has competition law got to do with climate change? In one sense, it has a lot to do with it, because competition law, competition, is part of a capitalist system which encourages us all to produce and consume more and more goods, using up more and more of the world's resources. Now, I'm not here to challenge the capitalist system. Indeed, I'm a member of the establishment. I'm trying, what I'm trying to show is what we can do within the system, within the laws that we have. And I accept that in some ways competition law, you could say, has got a little to do with it. But if I decide personally to stop eating beef, to cycle to work, to take the train and not a plane, I can only make a little difference on a personal basis. But everyone is called upon to make our contribution to the necessary change, as the European Commissioner Vestea said at a recent conference on sustainability and competition law. And I've been thinking about this for the last six months or so, and I've decided we must do something within our own area of expertise, and I believe we have the legal tools to do that. For me, the most important issue is that competition law should not stand in the way of necessary cooperation between companies. As again, as Commissioner Vestaya said, that is often the most efficient way for changes to be made to fight climate change. But if, com if companies act individually, they will often increase their costs and suffer what we call a first mover disadvantage. If you raise your standards for car emissions, that comes at a price. We have seen that car manufacturers have, in my view, legitimately cooperated to raise car emission standards. In my own experience as a private practice lawyer for 35 years, I've worked on projects to increase recycling rates, to reduce packaging where companies have cooperated perfectly legally. An example the UK Competition Authority gave was efforts to phase out inefficient light bulbs, light bulbs that didn't last as long as they should do or a scheme approved by the European Commission to phase out inefficient washing machines. I'd emphasize at the beginning, we're not talking about what some people call greenwashing. If companies cheat on the car emission system, the full force of the law should be applied to them. If, as in the 1920s, um, there, was, there were a scheme to reduce the life of a light bulb, that again would be highly anti-competitive um, and should again competition law should apply. The problem is in my view that advisors and the authorities are too risk averse. Commissioner Vistaya herself recognised that. 
In my own experience, this is having a bad effect. For example, recently I was asked to advise in relation to an initiative to encourage sustainable fishing. Suppliers, retailers would, no, would not buy from unsustainable sources of fish. One retailer, one of the biggest in Europe, said, we cannot sign this because we are afraid this is a collective boycott. They weren't going to do anything um, unsustainable, but they were afraid to sign it. It could have upset the whole system. The European Parliament has also recognised that competition law is a barrier to vital action. Moving on, we have the legal tools, as I said earlier, and in Europe we have both the constitutional provisions and the competition provisions, which I think are very helpful here. And I'm going to focus on what the law actually says, and I'm not going to focus on what I've called imported and often unhelpful or abstract concepts such as consumer welfare, public interest, non-economic factors, non-competition factors. Let's get back to what the law actually says and lets us do. The constitutional provisions of the treaty, I'm not going to take you through all these, hopefully you can see some of the key ones on the screen. And I fully accept that what some of the terms here mean, sustainable, um, fair trade, these are difficult concepts. But what I'm saying is that nobody can say that these are not relevant to the treaties or to the application of competition law. Where there is a conflict between different concepts, then we exercise judgment and apply the well-established proportionality principles. The one provision I will mention is Article 11 of the uh, Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. You can see that here, but it's worth re reading in full. Environmental protection requirements must be integrated into the definition and interpretation of the Union's policies and activities in particular with a view to promoting sustainable development. Now, can anybody tell me where it says except when applying competition law? Of course it doesn't. We must use these concepts when applying competition law. In my paper, which I is about to be published in the Journal of Antitrust Enforcement by Oxford, I set this out in a lot of detail as to how I think these provisions can apply in particular contexts. What I want to do today is to give you an idea of um, the key uh, relevance of these concepts in different areas of competition law. Before I do that, I feel obliged, against my better judgment, to say just a word about consumer welfare, because people talk about it so much in academic circles. In my view, this is an unnecessary de detour. Where does it talk about consumer welfare? Anywhere in the treaties or indeed in the antitrust laws of other systems. Nowhere. It's an unnecessary import invented by the likes of the Chicago School, the neoliberal, um, neoliberal movement and so forth. And before people think I'm attacking the US system, I'm not. Many in the US are also criticising a narrow use of the term consumer welfare. But actually, if it were in our treaties, if it were in our laws, it could be quite a good test. If you look up what consumer welfare means, it refers to the health, happiness, and the future of a person or group. It refers to well-being and good health. This concept is perfectly capable of encompassing having clean air to breathe, producing goods, using fewer resources, or having enough food to eat. 
it means it's at least as relevant to those as concepts such as lower price. Not that lower prices are not, are not um, important. In my view, we focus too much on high, highly theoretical discussions about issues such as consumer welfare. And when I've been struggling with this, a picture came to my mind of the story of the Roman Emperor Nero playing the violin whilst Rome was burning in front of him. And my picture here illustrates everybody talking about all these strange abstract concepts rather than doing something whilst climate change carries on at a frightening pace. So let's get back and talk about what the treaties actually say, what our laws say, rather than what they don't say. The most important of these, to my mind, in the, an EU context is Article 101. Article 101 of our treaty is the one that prohibits anti-competitive anti agreements, but provides for an exemption if certain conditions are met. In my paper, I set out five ways in which uh, we, an agreement to promote sustainability to fight climate change might escape that prohibition. Exactly how they escape them doesn't really matter. Uh, again, academics can write a lot about which one applies. I don't really care, so long as uh, one of them, where appropriate, provides um, a way of getting on with vital work. I'll mention them only briefly today. Again, there is more brief, more detail in my paper. Of course, many agreements, in fact, most agreements, don't restrict competition at all. We should never lose sight of that. The European Commission's 2001 Horizontal Guidelines set out some helpful guidance as to when agreements might not, uh, sustainability agreements might not be caught by uh, competition law. Unfortunately, they're not in the current guidelines but I'm hopeful, indeed increasingly confident, that in the revised guidelines for the European Commission, sustainability will once again find its place. We have many examples in the cases where agreements have been found not to be caught, agreements to reduce emissions, for example. And one I'll mention here, Fair, the Fair Wear Foundation Living Wage. This was an agreement by people buying textiles from uh, from suppliers in all parts of the world, largely poor parts of the world, an agreement to pay them a living wage, a fair wage. And an opinion was obtained from one of the leading law firms saying that in the real world, this was not caught by competition law and the risk of enforcement action being taken was low. And an interesting point, the European Commission, I know personally, was involved behind the scenes and said that would not take action. But frustratingly, they would not say anything publicly. And that's part of the problem. Um, when, often when I talk to officials, they say, well, Simon, that's not a problem at all. But they're not sending that message out in what they're saying publicly. What they say to me over a nice dinner or, or over a couple of beers is quite different to what you tend to hear in conferences. Um, the, I won't go into the next one. That's a, an, an, an idea I have based upon a leading judgment of the European Court. Um, I'll leave, I'm happy to talk about that if people are interested. Um, I won't say much about the next one either, that some of you may be familiar with the so-called ancillary, ancillary restraints or objective necessity doctrine, but basically this provides the possibility that sustainability agreements which contain proportionate restrictions without which the agreement would not be concluded or which are necessary to carry out an environmental regulatory task 
may be held not to fall within Article 101 uh, at all. Cases like Ogilvy and Wouters um, uh, provide the legal basis for that. It's been objected that, oh, this hasn't been tested. Well, if it hasn't been tested in the sustainability context, that, to my mind, is an opportunity to the one I do want to say a few words about is Article 101.3. Article 101.3 enables certain enables agreements which meet each of four conditions to be exempted. There has been masses of academic literature written about this, discussing things like, again, consumer welfare, non-economic factors. What's curious is that so often this discussion doesn't mention the law. I was at a, a high-level conference in London um, a few weeks ago, pre-COVID-19, uh, unfortunately, uh, I would add, and a number of leading economists and lawyers, all experts in their field, discussed this. Not one of them actually mentioned what the law said, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at what the law actually says, and remember we should be interpreting this in the light of the constitutional provisions to which I referred a moment ago. The first condition for an exemption is that an agreement must contribute to improving the production or distribution of goods or to promoting economic progress. I could talk a lot about this, but I think people tend to make two mistakes, and I would say I have made both mistakes myself in the past. One is the economic element here is only one of four ways in which something can be exempted. An agreement could be looking to improve production, it could be looking to improve distribution, it could be looking to promote technical progress. It's not just about economic progress. And you can see how many sustainability, sustainability initiatives will fall into one of those four categories, including, of course, the economic progress. So don't let's hear people talking about can we get non-economic factors into competition law. Got economic factors, economic progress is one of four ways in which something can be, approved, can be approved. And the second mistake is people often say, ah, Article 101 prohibits anti-competitive agreements. Article 101.3 allows them to be exempt if the pro-competitive effects outweigh those. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It says what is written on this slide. It saying that you look at the pro-competitive effects is a convenient shorthand with non-technical clients sometimes, and I've done that many times myself, but it is lazy and will often lead us to the wrong answer. We should look at what Article 101.3 actually says. The second condition is that the agreement must allow consumers to have a fair share of the resulting benefit. There's a lot of debate over which consumers benefit. Um, can benefit and again I can be happy to take questions on that but the constitutional provisions and the fact that environmental benefits are clearly recognized as consumer benefits suggests that you cannot take a narrow view of this and leading cases such as the CSED case the Commission said in the environmental results for society would adequately allow consumers a fair share of the resulting benefit even if no benefits accrued to individual producers. The point I'd like to emphasize here is that we must, making this judgment about a fair share, we must give proper weight to what really matters. What weight do we give to something being one cent, one 
pound, one dollar less, cheaper. What weight do we give to things that really matter? Climate change, the health, air our children will breathe. Will breathe. Now there is a need for constructive dialogue between those of us who are looking for competition or not to get in the way of bike initiatives and to work with the enforcers here. Um, because I think from talking to senior officials, this is one of the ways, one of the biggest obstacles to um, competition enforcers getting comfortable with this. And again, I've made some suggestions in my paper um, and I rewrote this section after discussions with the people at the European Commission. The third condition is that the agreements must be no more restrictive than necessary. And I fully accept that some desirable sustainability agreements will fail because of this. That's fair enough. An agreement, for example, an agreement to pass on costs to consumers, however benefit, beneficial, um, may not be uh, no more restrictive than necessary. You collaborate to achieve some sustainability objective, but then you compete when you're selling your products to the customers. Uh, an agreement to pay better prices to farmers may be okay in some time, in some instances, but there are maybe less restrictive ways of achieving that similar level of support. You have to look at those case by case. And finally, there must be no elimination of competition. That's rarely going to be relevant here, and I won't say anything more about it. The other way, final way in which I mention um, is you might escape the prohibition of Article 101 is to have a standardisation agreement. The Commission gave guidance on that in the 2010 Horizontal Guidelines, and many commentators have said that that may be a way to get sustainability agreements falling outside 101. Again, I won't say more about that. I wanted to leave some time to say a bit about dominance, or abuse of dominance and mergers. First of all, abuse of dominance. Article 102 of the treaty prohibits uh, any abuse of a dominant position. And I think that exceptionally, we could use Article 102 as what I call a sword to attack unsustainable practices by dominant companies. If we can attack unfairly low prices think of predatory pricing or exclusionary rebates, or excessive selling prices, think of in cases like Pfizer recently, why not unfairly low purchase prices? And that's in our treaty. Article 102A refers specifically to unfair purchase or selling prices or other unfair trading conditions. Of course it's difficult, but we do have the tools. If we can devise methodologies for predatory pricing or excessive pricing, we can do so for unfair purchase pricing. I'd emphasize that I think this is only going to be exceptional. Um, in many cases, there won't be a dominance, you won't find dominance anyway. And regulation is usually the best option um, or first choice. But we should not forget Article 102 if there is a regulatory gap and the regulations are not taking care of things. And again, the European Parliament has called upon the Commission to do something about this. Other comment here is that some national laws specifically make provision for this, Italy being an example. And then my second point on dominance is that it's I think it's quite possible that proportionate behaviour to tackle environmental or climate change issues, which might otherwise have been considered to be abusive, may be uh, not amount to an abuse, as long as there is no res less restrictive way of doing it. 
In other words, there's an objective justification. Again, I give some examples in my paper, but I've mentioned perhaps just one of them. Supposing I refuse to supply somebody by denying them access to my facility. For example, I deny access to my um, petrol station to or my refueling centre to diesel vehicles, and I don't discriminate. I think that could be a defence to a refusal to supply. But my big message here is I think we should help big companies to do the right thing. Many big companies are those with the economic weight to actually make a difference. And many companies are trying to do the right thing. I'm not trying to in any way excuse greenwashing, but we should not let competition law be any more of a hindrance to these companies and the many people within them trying to do the right thing. So finally, before uh, the third area is mergers. Now, some of this is, um, is more EU specific. My paper looks at five aspects of, and five ways in which sustainability may be relevant in a merger context. Now, perhaps here I'll just make three points. First of all, for those familiar with the EU merger regulation, it does, the assessment criteria include development of technical and economic progress. And there's, the wording is similar to that to which I referred a moment ago in talking about the exemption provisions in Article 101. The second point I would perhaps refer to, refer to mention today is remedies. Remedies, mergers can be cleared unconditionally or subject to remedies or commitments as we sometimes call them. And I think we could potentially make greater use of remedies as a I might even call it a compromise. Let me give you an example. Supposing a German company and a French company merge. They each have one factory and the rationale of the merger is to close the factory in France and to expand the one in Germany to achieve economies of scale and scope. Now there is an economic efficiency. Now I'm not standing here as, a, as, a, as an environmentalist saying this merger shouldn't be allowed. What I'm suggesting, although that's not completely excluded, but what I'm suggesting is that why not allow the merger to get the economic efficiencies, but let's have some remedies that deal with the harms, the real harms that it's causing. For example, people in France will be made unemployed. Why not make it conditional upon retraining those workers or other work? And in Germany, the expansion of the factory could lead to environmental damage, more more pollution, more noise, more trucks going in and out. You could have environmental abatement conditions attached to the merger. And the third comment that I would just like to illustrate is, don't forget many cases fall to national rules and many countries, such as Germany, have the potential for the state to approve or block a merger where the competition authority has taken a different decision. And the, the, just as I was writing my paper, the Germans gave me a present in the Mieber Solent case. The German government cleared a deal that had been blocked by the German Bundeskartellamt, their competition authority. It said that the positive effects of the deal for the environment and climate change outweighed the competitive disadvantages. And they cited noise reduction, reduced fuel consumption, and more generally, climate protection and sustainable development policy. But is all this too difficult? I'm getting quite frustrated at conferences where 
some officials or some lawyers, some economists seem very sympathetic to the idea of fighting climate change, but then then say, oh, but it's all too difficult. Oh, but it's tricky. But I think we, uh, what I'm trying to show is that within our system, we, the, both the legal tools and policy considerations all point towards taking uh, climate change and sustainability considerations into account in a modern competition policy. And we shouldn't just be looking for ways to uh, not to achieve that. We should be looking for ways to use competition tools constructively. I've set out a whole chapter now in my paper dealing with these objections that people keep coming up with. I sometimes think people are working very hard trying to find a reason not to use competition law constructively, or put another way, to use competition law in a destructive way. First point I'd make is that we must apply the law anyway, and I've referred to what the law actually says, particularly the constitutional provisions. And if we don't focus on what is important, we risk competition law and antitrust law being seen as irrelevant. Indeed, there's a quite a widespread view that antitrust law has been seen as pretty irrelevant in the United States for some while. Sometimes it's suggested that, oh, this is too difficult. That sort of implies that taking a narrow, price-centric, short-term view is easy. It is not. I can tell you, if I'm sitting in the Competition Appeal Tribunal as a judge, and one side gives me 200 pages of economics that says, for example, that there has no, been no pass-on in a cartel case, and the other side gives me 200 pages of econometrics saying it's all been passed on to customers, that is not easy. Anybody who thinks that is easy has either never come across the situation or is deluding themselves. And the other, just to comment on one other point, no, maybe two. This is an economic approach. It is not a non-economic approach. We can use all the tools available to modern economics, environmental economics. We can use quantitative techniques, um, indeed taking into account externalities or true price um, or true costs or true price is very much an e economic exercise. There's a lot of work for economists to do to help us with this. And the final comment, some people say when I talk about climate change, ah yes, but where do we stop? There are so many considerations in the constitution, in the constitutional provisions. What about welfare? What about um, employment? What about this? What about that? But I'd make two points. One, we face an existential threat and a climate emergency. If we're ever going to single out one thing to really focus on in applying uh, in, in tempering competition law, it is the climate emergency. Other issues should be considered on their merit, but if other issues do not pass the test, that should not be a reason for not taking into account uh, climate change um, in an appropriate manner. And the final comment is, yes, we still need regulation. People sometimes say, isn't regulation better? Yes. Regulation is probably better in most circumstances, but where regulation is too inadequate, it is too national, it's too slow coming, then companies should, then we should not stand in the way of companies taking the vital action that is needed. My heading here is, is it all too difficult? Having listened to so many people in the conference, I'm tempted to change that and to borrow some words from President Obama. Yes, we can, is perhaps going to be my, uh, the title on an next edition of my article. So in conclusion, a narrow approach is not necessary. A narrow approach to competition law. By that I mean 
focusing just on short-term price effects and other more restrictive approaches. This is an obstacle to vital steps to combat climate change. And we can do a lot without changing the law. We need to revisit the law and economics. Many people here, in fact, probably most people here, have been involved with competition law, antitrust law in many ways. Are we really happy, personally, individually, that it's doing its job? Yes, it's prohibiting some bad cartels. Yes, it is allowing some helpful mergers, blocking some anti-competitive ones. But if it is really standing in the way of vital action by companies, and I'm sure it is, that I'm not comfortable uh, being part of the competition establishment. What we need to do is to give more robust and realistic advice. But changes, I recognise, may still be necessary. The establishment, we live in a conservative world, and the establishment is uh, pretty conservative. It may need help to give that robust advice. Now, in my paper, I conclude with 10 concrete steps that I would like to see being taken. I'll mention just two of them. I think top of my list is more positive statements from the competition authorities. Industry quite rightly hears from competition authorities about what they can't do. You mustn't, you mustn't collude with your competitors, you must not fix prices, etc. Quite right. But they don't hear the positive side. The European Commission, since 2003, has had the power to issue dis positive decisions. It has not once done so, not once in the last, whatever that is, 15, 16, 17 years, issued a positive decision. And the second thing I'd like to see is an updating of the Commission's guidelines and notices and prioritisation principles from the authorities. The Dutch have done that well. I'm delighted to see that the UK, for the first time ever in its annual plan, published last week, week before, has included climate change in it. Great, we are making progress in this. And finally, COVID-19 is a crisis, but around the world, competition authorities have been relaxing competition laws to deal with the consequences, recognizing that there is vital action, vital collaboration is needed to keep food supply uh, chains working, to keep food on our table. Climate change is also an emergency, in the, bigger, in the longer term, it's a bigger issue than COVID-19. And I'm not even asking for competition law to be uh, relaxed. I'm just asking for it to be applied in accordance with the law. So let's not, as we say, let's not fiddle while Rome is burning. And if we take just some of the actions, which, uh, oops, sorry. If we take just some of the actions that I'm proposing, then I would suggest that competition law can cease to be part of the problem, part of the solution. And if a final comment, if I may, Pablo, if people are interested in this area, um, we have set up a forum for an, an inclusive competition forum. If anybody is interested in joining that, very much welcome you on board. And you can, uh, if you Google that, you will find inclusive competition forum with details and uh, uh, details of how to join. So with that, I will pass back to Pablo. Thank you, uh, Simon. Uh, we have received a couple any of questions. questions. Yes, we, we did receive a couple of questions. Uh, I will try to give uh, the microphone to some of these, the participants. Uh, before I go with that, uh, we have a question on, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you mentioned ancillaries. Uh, 
artillery's restraints and uh, some, and you said you would not go further. Could you please comment a little bit further on that and how that's had any, anything to do with uh, sustainability, competition law, and how would you uh, use that on merge control mainly? Well, no, this is in the context of Article 101, uh, anti-competitive agreements. Yeah, sorry. Um, a, doc a doctrine was developed over the years um, where to, to find that certain agreements did not restrict competition law at all. Um, some of these are, 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 are it's fairly obvious and it was a way that which the court found to find that agreements weren't caught at all. And I, to be honest, one of the reasons why they did this, and I'll give you an example in a moment, um, was that because there was the national authorities and the individuals did not have a power to grant an exemption. My own personal view, and not that many academics would not agree with me, is that we wouldn't have needed this doctrine if um, the, we'd had self-assessment and you would have said, look, this agreement is court, but it meets the criteria for an exemption. But that wasn't a legal possibility in those days. So the courts found ways of saying, well, this agreement, which hasn't been notified to the European Commission, hasn't been approved, actually isn't court at all. It's a matter of, you might almost say common sense, but if put on much more legalistic terms than that. A good example of that is, for example, if you have um, agreements relating to um, doping amongst athletes. Now, that is actually reducing their ability to compete. If I take a drug, uh, we, we can compete with each other to take more and more drugs, but that is banned by the World Anti-Doping, by the Olympic Committee and all sorts of people. That has been held not to be anti-competitive because there are proportionate restrictions um, which are necessary to carry out the necessary task, organising international sporting arrangements. Um, now, I said I don't really care how things are. We, this is a doctrine there, so why not use it? And to be fair, there are some agreements which, if they were caught, might not meet the criteria for an exemption, but you could say common sense tells you that they're not really anti-competitive in the first place. And my theory is that the more climate change goes up the political agenda, the more likely this could be relevant. For example, if I, if I say, most people, if I refer to the doping example, will say, of course, that's not anti-competitive. But a formal analysis could easily find that to be anti-competitive, but common sense tells you that it is not. Whereas you have an agreement, for example, to minimise, to try and reduce the overcapacity in beef production in Ireland, um, where they tried that argument and the court said, no, 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 that is court, but it merits an exemption. And I think that, but sorry, but it has to be considered to see whether it merits an exemption. And I think that analysis is correct. But the more we realise that climate change is, fighting climate change is absolutely fundamental, the more society will come to see fighting climate change as more like having anti-doping rules and less like uh, an agreement to um, curtail capacity in beef production. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Ignacio Nicholson. Uh, thank you, Simon. Um, thanks for your presentation. My question is uh, whether you believe that uh, competition authorities are prepared to assess the environmental impacts of a merger or otherwise if those environmental impacts uh, you believe should be assessed by a different uh, regulatory authority. Thank you. Yes, well, uh, the, the approach I'm sure will vary a bit from one authority to another. And then it's perfectly legitimate um, to 
make a policy decision either that this is a matter that should be considered by the competition authority and i think there is scope limited scope i would add i'm not suggesting you know i'm not somebody who says so it's been suggested that if you have two mergers coming together if you have a merger of two companies which reduces um uh, price that will increase the total production and that is bad for the environment i'm not in that school of thought at all i think it's at the margins that environmental considerations come in but i do think they're relevant um it is and but it is equally um uh, possible to have a system where you say well we're actually we're going to make limited or no use of environmental considerations in the merger control considerations by the competition authorities but we're going to have a separate regime which considers that and the approach in germany i think illustrates that very well um, that the case i gave you um uh, from the where the Bundeskartellamt was overruled by the uh, economics ministry in germany illustrates that very well mm -hmm. thank you Thank you. Uh, we have another question from Victor Castillejo. Victor. Oh, okay. Thank you very much, very much, uh, Simon, for your presentation. It was really interesting. Um, it's something that it's something that it's quite fresh to hear. Also, it's not every day we hear about these sort of issues. And the thing I wanted to ask is regarding the concept of consumer welfare. I mean, I understand that concept in terms of price, of the price of the final product, to say, to say, for example. But how can you value the environmental benefit of that in the uh, authorities' decisions, in the competition authorities' decision? How can they value those sort of environmental impacts, and how can they sort of help the consumer understand? The, the value of that impact. Do, do I make myself uh, at least somewhat clear? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, again, I've, I, I've, I've discussed this more widely in my paper, but I make I think focus on two things. One, there are techniques for valuing environmental impacts. Um, it, I'm not an expert on it, but um, environmental economics is has made tremendous progress um, in perhaps in two, perhaps in two respects. First of all. Technical progress has meant that we can measure and quantify things. For example, the use of drones and satellites for measuring environmental impacts. And then the economists have developed techniques for valuing that and quantifying that. Uh, and those can be taken into account. So just as we should take into account, I see no, no less reason for taking into account that sort of economics than the sort of economics which, um, some, which are looking at, um, um, you know, likely effects on price down the line etc it's it's certainly no less certain than some of the techniques that are used at the moment and the second point which i'd make which is i think is equally important is that we should not assume just because we cannot reduce something to a new a number that it should not be taken into account as citizens as consumers as competition enforcers and certainly as judges we exercise judgment um, and we don't reduce everything uh, financial considerations. As Oscar Wilde said, a definition of a cynic is a man who knows the price of anything, the price of everything, and the value of nothing. Thank you, Simon. Um, we have another question from Sebastián Ferreira Romea. Uh, Sebastián, the floor is yours. Hello, Simon. Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can. Hi. Hello. Okay. Again, thanks for your time. The presentation was very enlightening and it's very relevant to our daily practice. So my question is, I fully agree that in a sense, this issue of the competition law analysis into the environmental topic should be driven or in a way pushed by regulation. So in that respect, I wanted to hear your opinion on the on, on, on how effective Margaret Bestager in the commission is considering the environmental uh, importance into competition law topics. Yeah, um, well, I'm a great fan of Commissioner Bestager. It doesn't mean to say I agree with everything, but um, we, the, the, we had a big conference on sustainability and competition law with the subtitle, bringing the two worlds together. And that's really what I'm trying to do. And she gave a speech there, which I've cited many times in my paper. And she says many, many things that are really helpful. Um, I think her um, staff are still very nervous about being, um, uh, about the issue because they feel, that, because it's something new, they're almost frightened of something because they feel as it's, it's something new. But for example, Commissioner Beersteyer said, um, she emphasized the importance of companies cooperating together. She recognized that that was often the most efficient way to achieve sustainability goals. Um, she said that the competition establishment was too conservative in the approach it took. So there are many, many things which she said, which I think are extremely helpful and which we can frankly, as I have done in my paper, cite back at her. And finally, she invited us to bring our cases to her. And a number of us here in Europe, for example, in the um, Inclusive Competition Forum, we're trying to find some appropriate cases to take to her and other competition authorities to say, look, no, this is, um, can, 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 can you confirm that you don't have a problem with this? Some competition authorities are more open to that as well. The, I particularly single out the Dutch competition authorities. I think uh, they've done some great work on their prioritization principles, which they plan to up, uh, update. And Martin Stuck, the president there, is certainly um, progressive. And I think his views and my views are very, very similar. Indeed, he's made constructive comments on my paper. Um, another person who's contributed to my paper was the chief economist at the UK Competition Authority, and he said to me privately, which I, 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 he gave me permission to say, repeat this, it's in my paper. Um, Simon, I agree with nearly everything you say. Okay. Um, Paolo here again. Uh, regarding the conference you mentioned uh, in Europe, uh, it's, uh, it's online. If anyone wants to watch the video, it's I think like eight hours video. And uh, there are lots of panels on sustainability and competition law. And, uh, October 24th, the Brussels conference, yes. Yeah, I remember, that was my birthday. Uh, there's another question from Autin Sivoli. Uh, he he asked, I mean, one, one approach from competition law might be to consider both uh, positive and negative uh, externalities from the energy resources, uh, yes. which are elected under the pure price analysis, so he says. Uh, would you agree with that view? Yes, I think it's certainly um, a potential way forward. Um, it's something which I only really came across. I mean, I knew, obviously, I knew about externalities. I mean, well, perhaps two comments. One, I find the term externalities a little... Um, a little odd the more I think about it because what we're saying is that if, if I produce something um, which has certain uh, costs I take into account some of those costs those in my factory 
But if I produce a lot of pollution and the, and the local state, the state has to pick up the costs of those, those are considered to be externalities, sometimes something outside the cost of production. All we're really saying is a matter of policy. Those do not have to be taken into account in the accounts of the company because somebody else is paying them. They are still costs and they're still real costs. And second comment I'd make is there's been a lot of development on true cost pricing and um, true cost accounting. And I think that's something which could be considerably developed, um, particularly for those who like to quantify everything, particularly our economist friends. There's some excellent work being done in the Netherlands on true cost pricing, if anyone's interested. Great, thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for your very interesting presentation, very provocative, actually. Uh, it's sort of science fiction, I would say, in, in South America, at least. Uh, maybe not in other countries, but uh, I think in these times, it's very interesting to get new ideas and, uh, and, and, and interesting insights from what you're discussing there in the UK. Mm -hmm.